1: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about James Forbes McCallum, a desperate man whose first and only robbery was ill-judged, unplanned and such a catastrophic failure that it ended in death. And yet, when he was arrested, he was so panicked that he gave the police five plausible alibis. But which alibi was right? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 102, The Five Alibis of James Forbes McCallum. Today, I'm standing on Wellington Street in Covent Garden, WC2 one street west of the brutal baker Alexander Moyer, two streets northwest of the last days of Marianne Moriarty, a short walk from the home of the 1st date killer, and barely 100 feet south of the former Bow Street Magistrates' Court, where an infamous forensic scientist would categorically prove, without a single shred of doubt, that Dr. Hawley Crippen had murdered his wife. Only he hadn't. Coming soon to Murdermile. East of Covent Garden is Wellington Street, a thin one-way street from the Strand to Bow Street, which is home to the Royal Opera House, the Lyceum Theatre and a wide variety of restaurants, cafes, bars and pubs. And although there's also a museum, being British, the most important places are the pubs we celebrate everything in pubs, whether births or deaths, commemorations or condolences, weekdays, weekends, and for those who don't work hard enough, bank holidays. Like most places, Wellington Street has many watering holes. Some are hideous hipster hovels serving Hoxton's finest ale in tiny thimbles. Some are brewery-owned dumps slopping out factory-produced drinks and nibbles to dull patrons who were allergic to imagination. And some are unashamedly fake boozers, where the decor of Guinness signs, old bikes, potatoes and cheeky leprechauns is so culturally insensitive, they might as well have just added some burnt-out cars, some kitty fiddling priests, and insisted that the band wears orange sashes. As the Polish bar staff all utter, Ah, to be sure as the St. Patrick's Day crowd flocked to celebrate a world-famous teetotaler by swigging back a mouthful of de black stuff, Ah, stuff. only to grimace, struggle to swallow, and dilute the rest of it with blackcurrant. Thankfully, at 42 Wellington Street is a real pub. Established in 1753... The coach and horses is a staple of Covent Garden life, with its red-fronted facade, greenery above, a left door leading to the public bar, and a right door to the saloon. This freehouse is authentic, real, and hospitable. It's a great place for a pint. But 80 years ago, it was also the scene of an unplanned robbery and an unexpected murder. As it was here, on Friday the 20th of December 1940 that a good and decent man called James Forrest McCallum would be driven by a desperate decision to steal money and take a life. James Forrest McCallum, known to his pals as Jimmy, was born on the 20th of September 1920 in Delmure, Scotland a few miles north of the bustling shipyard city of Glasgow. With his father working as a steel riveter in the docks, being recently married with one boy born and a second soon to join their brood, his mother worked several jobs just to keep this tumble-down tenement over their heads. Known only as Mrs. McCallum, his mother was a short but solid woman made of sturdy Celtic stock who toiled away from dusk till dawn, with one boy on her knee and one strapped to her chest. For the first few years of his life, James's whole world revolved around his mother. When she wasn't there, he screamed. But when she returned, he was soothed. As a neat and decent woman, seeing poverty as no excuse not to raise her boys well, they all knew their P's and Q's, their manners and morals, and although she was undoubtedly hard working, she was also a little haughty. Contrasted by her rough, calloused hands, she wore a fine hat, a neat shawl, she spoke with an upper class affection, and to everyone, even her own sons, she was Mrs. McCallum. On the 1st of December 1922, desperate to flee their grimy Glasgow slum, The McCallums set sail to Canada, having arrived in New Brunswick just three days before Christmas and set up a new home in Quebec. As a slightly sickly, intensely pale child, having taken the bold but wise decision to raise her boys in the crisp, fresh Canadian air. Although, for the rest of his life, James would be thin, frail, weak and prone to every cold and infection, His chance of survival was ten times better than in Glasgow. Being an average student, James was decent, likeable, but unremarkable. He didn't excel, but then he was never in any trouble. And raised well by Mrs. McCannum. after school and every weekend, James earned a small wage as an errand boy, half of which he always gave to his mother to earn his keep. In 1931, when James was 11, his father died, leaving his mother a widower with no income. Being industrious, she turned their home at 391 3rd Avenue into a boarding house, aided by her sons. But by his teens, living and working day and night alongside such a controlling woman, James felt trapped. He had no future. No fun. And under the harsh scrutiny of his disapproving mother, no girlfriend. Mrs. McCallum wasn't mean. She was just scared. As once her boys had grown up, she knew that she would be left with nothing. In 1938, having become unwell, she shut the boarding house. This was James's chance to escape. And yet, it was a world-changing event, which would provide him with freedom. This is at war with On the 5th of September 1939, with Europe at war against the Nazis, 18-year-old James did his bit and signed up to fight as part of the Royal Canadian Regiment. Barely passing his medical, as a 5-foot-8-inch, skinny and pasty-faced boy, who would never see the battlefield. As part of the Canadian Provost Corps, he was assigned to protect London, as the city's own police force had been decimated. Starting as a private, within the year he was promoted to acting corporal on a wage of $80 a month, $50 of which he sent to his mother in his regular letters. Described by his seniors as a sober, respected and an excellent officer, he rarely drank and was never in any trouble. And as a welcome sight, being dressed in the easily identifiable uniform of the Canadian Provost Corps, a peaked cap with a bright red top and a long gray greatcoat with a bright red emblem, being armed with a .455 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, and based out of nearby 30 Henrietta Street. James and his fellow officers were a familiar and reassuring sight. As they patrolled the streets in and around Covent Garden Market. Just one street from the Coach and Horses pub. James Forbes McCallum was well mannered, polite, and decent. He had a good career, a steady income, and a bright future ahead. He didn't argue or fight, and he had no criminal record or history of violence. And yet, 15 months after his arrival in England in a totally unprovoked and spontaneous attack he would commit an armed robbery and a murder. In a state of panic as his terrified brain fumbled to find an ounce of logic in his truly apparent actions James gave the police five logical but equally plausible alibis as to why he did what he did. Alibi 1. Drink. Most crimes are committed while the culprit is intoxicated, causing a lack of judgment, coordination, and a misguided confidence. James wasn't much of a drinker, but in the weeks, and especially the days leading up to the incident, his best friend, 44-year-old Lance Corporal John Osborne, known as Mac, said that James had begun drinking heavily, just as he had the night before the robbery. If he was intoxicated, that could explain why his memory was so hazy, why he shouted, hands up, paper money, but he didn't steal a penny, why he hid his face with a thick woollen balaclava, but forgot about his long grey greatcoat, emblazoned with a bright red emblem of the Canadian provost Corps, and more bafflingly, how James got shot in the arm when he was the only person in the pub with a gun. And yet, if the barman had fought back, as James would later suggest, why did no one hear a fight? Where were the fingerprints if the barman had wrestled away the weapon? And how could two men have struggled together if there was a bulky set of brass and glass screens between them? That aside, we know that James wasn't drunk as having got his dates wrong, he'd actually drank with Mac two nights earlier, barely drank in the night before, and when he was arrested, he was stone-cold sober. Alibi 2. Money. Many crimes are perpetrated for financial gain, as too often greed and needs can overrule a person's morals and even make the most sensible do silly and spontaneous things. Sadly, a few weeks after his promotion to acting corporal, being declared physically unwell, James was demoted to Lance Corporal. If he was broke, that could explain why he robbed the pub, why he felt forced to loan ten shillings off Mac just two days prior, why, as a good boy, he only sent $25 to subsidize his sick mother in November, and why, by the 14th of December, just one week before, those regular payments would cease. And yet, it seems unlikely, as James wasn't a greedy man, if anything, he was generous and charitable, and as a lands corporal, he still made a good wage and with his clothes, his food, and his accommodation all paid for by the military. For those three weeks prior, he was living in a modest double room at the Trafalgar Hotel, just off Trafalgar Square. Alibi 3. Illness As witnessed 32 years earlier, in the bank of Cartmel and Schlitt, just half a mile west of Covent Garden, a long history of illness and the weakened immune system of a sickly young boy had possibly triggered petty mal seizures, under the grip of which a young man had robbed a bank, but could recall nothing. Always being pale, weak and frail, having moved from the crisp air of Canada to the choking smog of London, James's health had deteriorated. One year prior, being struck down with pneumonia and pleurisy, the army doctor had assessed James four times over the last four months and being declared unfit, he was forced to take unpaid leave and he was demoted owing to his poor health. If he was ill, that could explain the robbery, the shooting, the vagueness of the incident without being drunk and how a good man could be driven to heinously break his own moral codes. And yet, Even that seems a stretch, as James had no history of epilepsy or any mental illness. He was never aggressive, delusional or disorientated. Being fit to stand trial, he didn't take the insanity plea, and although his memory was a little vague, he pleaded not guilty to murder, as he knew the barman, he liked him, and the two men had never had any issues. So the question wasn't if he had consciously done it. He had. The question was why. Alibi 4 Trauma The human body is a marvel of self-repair. Skin can heal, blood can clot, and bones can mend. But the hardest injury to recover from after an incident isn't any physical effects, but the psychological ones. As although the brain may escape unscathed from an unimaginable horror, trauma can still remain. On Friday, the eleventh of October, nineteen forty, at twelve thirty-five a.m., three days into the Blitz, a high explosive bomb hit twenty-four Greek Street in Soho. It demolished the building, erupted the gas main, and trapped dozens in the wreckage. Three people died, eight people were injured, and countless others escaped unhurt, but were left traumatized by this first brutal wave of bombings from the skies, as innocent civilians going about their everyday lives, witnessed skin burned, limbs scattered, and bodies blown apart, right in front of their eyes. One of those affected was James McCallum. Being psychologically traumatised by the bombing, seeing the army doctor and complaining of a series of justifiable symptoms such as tiredness, headaches and nerves, James drank to ease his pain, took sick leave on the 16th of December and was recuperating well in the quiet of room 6 in the Trafalgar Hotel. And yet, it was unlikely that his trauma resulted in either the robbery or the murder. As the personality, behavior, morals, and the attitude of James had not changed. Those who knew him said he was still his same old self. Quiet, calm, caring, keen to get back to work, and was making a slow but steady recovery. Without doubt, all four alibis had contributed to the crime. Money had made him desperate. Drink had clouded his judgement, illness had made him weak, and trauma had fueled his fragmented emotions. But these weren't the main motivations for his crime, as his fifth alibi was love. Strangely, having first met on the night of Friday the 11th of October 1940, the bomb, which had blasted Greek Street apart, had ignited a passion inside a passing couple and driven these two young lovers together. Swept up in a whirlwind romance, as wartime sweethearts, 21-year-old James McCallum had fallen for 19-year-old Irene Turnbull, a local waitress and recent orphan. As a perfect match, both were quiet, shy and caring. And just as she was his first love, he was hers. In just nine weeks, they had met, fallen in love, moved into a hotel together, and just one week before Christmas, they planned to be married. James had finally met the one. Only there was one obstacle ahead of him. His mother. Mrs. McCallum would never approve of this girl, or any girl, as no girl would ever be good enough for her little boy and as she had always feared, once he was gone, this lonely widow would be all alone. On Monday the 16th of December, 1940, having slipped the best ring he could afford onto his beloved's finger, James and Irene got engaged in the shadow of Trafalgar Square, with a plan to be together forever. On Tuesday the 17th, having drank until he was insensible, And being in a distressed state, James poured out his woes to Mac, his best friend and a surrogate father figure, who he always turned to for help. As having telegrammed his mother to get permission to marry, he anxiously awaited her reply. On Wednesday the 18th, the day of their wedding, James received a telegram. It read, Ridiculous idea. Seems very thoughtless to me. I need your help. And it was signed, Mrs. McCallum. The young lovers were distraught, their wedding was cancelled, and the money they'd saved to marry was gone. On Thursday the 19th, with his heart ripped apart by the gut-wrenching decision between disobeying his mother or finally finding love, although Irene was happy to wait... A furious James fired back a telegram to Canada. With a curt, I shall marry, with your permission, or or not. That night, having prematurely signed into the Trafalgar Hotel as Mr and Mrs McCallum, the two timid lovers lay in bed, curled up in each other's arms. Only James couldn't rest. After months of illness, days without sleep, still half hungover, and another night of reawakened trauma as the bombers pummeled the West End, having loaned 10 shillings off Mac, he knew this still wasn't enough money to get married. At 4am, James left the hotel saying he was going to buy some cigarettes. But instead, he did the unthinkable. The coach and horses at 42 Wellington Street had long been a family business. Owned by Daisy and Harry Phillips, the pub was managed by their nephew David Shulman, with his brother Morris as the barman. Described as a sweet and kind man, 40-year-old Morris, known as Morrie, had only worked in the pub for the last nine months, having lost his job to the war. And although he wasn't outgoing... The customers liked him, as he was a good man who loved his wife, his family, and he kept to himself. Set on the ground floor of a four-storey red brick building, most of its regular customers would perch with a pint on the pavement, as this small single-roomed pub was barely twenty foot wide by twenty-five feet deep. Dominated by a large central bar, the room was split into two with a larger public bar to the left and separated by a partition a small saloon to the right which stands 20 people at a push with lines of tap handles for pulling pints spirit bottles with optics water jugs as mixers and a tea urn for the lightweights it was very much a regular pub and as a way to serve food and to act as a security measure which kept any drunks from the booze, the bar staff and the till. Above the counter, from waist height to head height, were a set of brass and glass grills with a series of spring-loaded windows, with a license to serve from 5am. Having put a £20 float in the till, Morris opened the doors and the day started as it always did. Slowly. At 5.10am, 54-year-old John Anderson, a short, one-armed lift operator, entered the public bar, ordered a pint, and sat reading the paper. He was the only customer. David was in the cellar. Dolly, Morrie's wife, was upstairs. And Morris was cleaning the glasses. But less than one minute later... Morris would be dead. As James staggered up Wellington Street, with his mind clouded by equal measures of love and anger, and his body stumbling with exhaustion, as this lovesick boy could only see one solution to his problem, without his mother's permission, he would be forced to commit his first and only crime. Only being ill judged and unplanned, this spontaneous robbery would end in a catastrophic failure. Outside the pub, James's terrified fingers nervously pulled his woolen balaclava over his pale face. His breathing was fast and frantic, his head was thumping hard, and having forgotten that his long grey greatcoat was emblazoned with the bright red emblem of the Canadian police. Fumbling his army-issued revolver in his cold, sweaty hands, James dashed into the empty saloon, intent on a quick robbery. Inside, James stammered, hands up, Paper paper money. Only his order didn't make any sense. As with the pub having only just opened, The till was full of coins, and yet, amidst the darkness of this sparsely lit pub, with a bulky brass grill in their way, the two men couldn't see each other, so although Morris had put his hands up and his eyes shut in the hope that this would all go away, as James couldn't tell if he had seen the gun, he swung open the glass of the Head height serving hatch and poked his gun through. Only, not realising that the window was spring-loaded, the second his left hand let go, it swung back, the glass smacked the muzzle, and flipping his revolver 90 degrees, James shot himself in the arm. The bungling bandit was dazed, confused, and profusely bleeding from a self-inflicted flesh wound. The robbery was a catastrophe. And right then, he should have fled. But with his nerves frayed, his body tense, and his hot balaclava riding up his sweat-soaked face, with the eye holes obscuring any view, he hadn't realized his mistake. And thinking that the unarmed Morris had shot him, James retaliated. A single shot ripped through Morris's throat, hitting the hard bone of his spine. The bullet then fractured into three pieces. One hit a glass panel, one hit a picture, and one hit the tea urn. But the bulk of the lead had severed the barman's spine. And before he had even hit the floor, Morris was dead. Being too panicked and traumatized by his actions, James fled empty-handed. Shaken up, James called Mac, who rushed back to the billet they shared at Two Bedford Place. And reassured by James that this was nothing serious, he had just accidentally shot himself, having dressed his wound with a field dressing and iodine. The two pals parted company. At 8am, hearing a bulletin, the detectives were seeking a young Canadian police officer in a long grey greatcoat with a bullet wound to his left arm. As Mac was a professional, he called it in. At 9:30 a.m., James was arrested for the murder of Morris Shulman. In a state of panic, confusion, and exhaustion, being desperate to aid the police with their investigation, although his memory of this traumatic event was a little hazy, James gave five possible but equally plausible alibis for his crime. James Forbes McCallum was tried at the Old Bailey on Tuesday the 11th of February 1941 and after just a two-day trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. On Friday the 28th of February 1941, a few days before his execution, Mrs. McCallum died. Being distraught At the grief of losing his beloved mother, James won his appeal on compassionate grounds and owing to the trauma he had suffered in the bombing. And with his execution, commuted to a life sentence in prison, James was deported back to Canada to serve the rest of his time. James Forbes McCallan was denied love by his mother, marriage to his lover, and being short of just a few pounds for a very simple wedding, he would be forced to pay the ultimate price. James never married Irene, and being separated by a vast ocean, the two young lovers would never meet ever again. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the episode, and next is Extra Mile the non-compulsory extra bit which you can choose to listen to or choose not to listen to. I'm good either way. It's no biggie if you don't. Before that a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters who are Kelly Cook, Caroline King, Neil and Sharon War. Happy belated birthday Sharon and Seanette Jones I thank you. All of you will be receiving a thank you card full of goodies. And some very lucky people will receive a very rare Murdermile keyring too. Ooh. Murdermile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Yay! Done and dusted! Ah, And rest, open windows, let some air in, let some flies in, which seems to be the thing at the moment. That's the problem with being near a poo plant. Is there's uh there's lots of flies buzzing around. Uh there's a big ones, and every time I sit down to have a cup of tea, I grab my tea and I go, Oh, there's a big old fly on my tea, having a good sniff, walking round on my cup with his feet all covered in shit, ah oh, lovely, anyway everyone hey, this is Extra Mile, we are here, we're back, we're back with Extra Mile, uh, this is the extra bit as mentioned, not compulsory, you don't have to listen to this bit, the episode was the bit you just listened to, uh, this is not, this is the extra bit, you can switch off now if you want to, it's not a problem at all, oh uh, 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 yes, No. I thought I swatted a fly. It wasn't. It was my earplugs. Same colour. Right. Uh, Anyway, right. Uh, I'm going to make my tea. I'm going to grab a cake. I'm going to swat some flies. I'm going to open some windows because it's bloody hot. I'm going to let all the flies in. They're probably queuing up outside. Oh, there is an unnatural whiff around here. It's weird. You kind of get used to it. You kind of, when you when you first moor up you go oh what's that what's that smell it's a weird smell it's you know it's the smell of shit but it's weird it's it, it's it's i'm not too sure whether it's concentrated or diluted or what but there's yeah very, very definite smell of plopskis. so pop a tea bag in pop me sugar in yeah. there we go that oh what to have as a treat i'm gonna have two treats let's do it uh... two treats wow i'm really spoiling myself i'm having a little bakewell tart from co-op oh yes i might have to eat that quick before the fly lands on it uh, and a penguin A penguin lovely Chalky bickies. I think they're not too far from uh, I believe in other countries you have a similar thing called t- Tim Tams which I've tried many times. They're very good. I think penguins are kind of our our version. So uh, now people are going to think I'm weird because I've just opened up my windows and doors and now people are going past and going. Well, there's a man talking to himself. That's fine, I don't care. Oh, right. Oh. So what's been happening recently uh i moved to a different place it's nice and quiet here although the second i got out of my boat uh me and my magic trainers which seem to find shit wherever we seem to be i found i literally i was like what's that and i realized the foot my first foot on soil was not soil it was on big in a big dog plop so i spent uh, about half an hour trying to clean away the dog plop that was lovely that's a treat uh i picked up loads more murder Marm mugs um As you can appreciate, I don't have uh, my PO box is in town, and I'm about 30 miles away, so I had to cycle into town with coot fight outside, Uh, like three rucksacks on my bag, and I get into town. I filmed some of the location videos when I got into town, try and get as much done as possible in a short amount of time. Got in there, did all the videos, packed as many bags, uh, rucksacks as I could with mugs. And badges and stickers and the new key rings I picked up as well, which is very exciting. Uh, and then I had to carry them back, and it was a bloody hot day. Oh dear! So that. So when you get your mugs and your treats and things like that, don't forget, remember that they've they've travelled from one place to my PO box, but then I've cycled all the way in and put them on my rucksack, and I like to carry them back. And it's oh, by the time I get back to the boat, I'm exhausted. Anyway, they're back, so I've got more mugs. So if anyone wants a mug. Uh, they're there, um, some lucky patron people will be getting, uh, exclusive key rings, I don't know whether I'll sell them in the shop yet, I'm not too sure, or whether they'll just be a special thing anyway, uh, what else have we been doing, uh, I had some Mrs. Crimble's macaroons recently, they were very good, very good, I think I've mentioned those before where I thought, i thought they were they were in the kind of the free from section so i thought they were good and healthy but then i realized on the back that each macaroon is about 250 calories yeah so uh yeah easy way to get fat uh last week after i recorded uh, i was laundry day as always so i went to my a new laundrette that i've never been to um and as you walk in there instantly you see people weighing loads of ppe they got their visors on they got the like almost like full hazmat suits on it's a bit bit disconcerting when you kind of you know you put your you've got a big washing machine full of like pants and socks and they're standing there looking at your washing machine wearing all this protective gear and then they turn around and go we just need to add some disinfectant it's because of the virus and you go is it because of the virus or is it because it's my pants and socks yeah anyway so uh there was that i had a day off last sunday that was exciting. Uh, I don't normally have a day off. Normally it's... M- normally it's... Sunday is pr- prep the next episode. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is write. Thursday is record and clean up all the audio. Friday, Saturday is edit. S- then back to Sunday is put it online, do the blog, da-da-da, and get ready for the next episode. Uh, and I got myself a little bit ahead, and then the Sunday morning I just thought... I woke up and I thought, I can't be asked. now It's like another seven days of slugging my guts out so i had a day off which was very nice i woke up had a bacon sandwich yep very vegetarian of me i watched uh uh what did i watch i watched dial m for murder because i like me hitchcock films dial m for murder and then i watched north by northwest i was going to watch foreign correspondent but i watched that instead that was good and then i went for a long walk and that was really nice that was good (laughs) tease up I think I'm going to have myself another day off this week, methinks. There we go. I think it was always a panic of having a day off because it's like I'm used to working a little bit, so like. A chunk of Sunday and then all of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All all writing on those days. But Because I took Sunday off. I thought, oh no, now I'm behind with writing the story. But then I kind of realised, you know, I sat down on the Monday and I actually did a shit tonne of work. And then Tuesday I did a shit tonne of work as well. And I thought, and it wasn't really a struggle. And then I realised, you know, as I've said before, if you give yourself an extended amount of time, you'll use all that time. If you give yourself less time, you'll use all that time, and your brain's focused. If you give yourself more, too much time, then you just you're. I'm a daydreamer. I can drift off into a little dream world for hours and have fake conversations, which I love. But if you know you haven't got the time, you haven't got time for conversations. So, and I find myself going, Michael, concentrate, concentrate, get back to the story. So. It's been quite good. I've been powering through these stories, so uh, I'm going to do that from now on. Give myself Sundays. I'm going to. i I've, I think I've said this before. Give myself time off. I never do, do I? But soon, probably the tools will start up again. So that'll. I mean, that'll be fun. That's a little. Well, I got burpees. I got real burpees today. Shouldn't have had three chunky fish finger sandwiches for breakfast. Oh dear! I've been burping all the way through this episode. Right. Let's do the quest quiz questions. Uh, as mentioned, some will be in this episode. Some might have edited it out for time purposes or whatever. Uh, so I'll give you the questions now, and then uh, we'll do the answers later on. Right. <gasps> Question one: What were the five alibis of James McCallum? I did them in order. So uh, what were the five alibis of James McCallum? Question two. Which room did James stay in at the Trafalgar Hotel? I've got pet up, I've, I've taken pictures of all these locations. So the Trafalgar Hotel, Two Bedford Place, which was his billets that he shared shared with. Uh, uh, making sure it's not a question, Mac. Yeah uh all these locations uh, and the pub as well so I'll, I'll put those on that's on the patreon page uh, they may be on my blog as well i sometimes put things on my blog as well uh question three what did james's dad do as a job cool you have to stretch your memory back for that one question four what crime did james pre what crime was james previously convicted of So before the murder and the robbery, what crime was he previously convicted of? Question five. What was the name of Morris's wife and his brother? Briefly mentioned in there. Question six. uh, What type of gun did James carry? Same gun as last week as well. Uh, Although there were a lot of them... uh, in the country at that point question 7 what what was james J- what was james's military rank when he was arrested question 8 what job did irene do i can't think about her name being irene cuz irene is the code name they use in black hawk down when they're going into war And every time I write Irene, I go, fucking Irene! (laughs) I might watch Black Hawk Down again. That's a good film. Uh, Question nine. uh, Where did James and Irene get engaged? Uh, And question ten which building was blown up in soho as witnessed by james i've taken a picture of what it looks like now that'll be i think i i put that on the blog because it's mine i think the original photo i'm not too sure because i'm i probably won't have the copyright for that so uh i don't know i don't know where i'll put that um so uh yeah uh uh interesting episode um uh, I heard, about, I can't remember. I heard about this in, uh, I can't remember. I heard about it somewhere. This like years ago about a man who went into Robber Place and I think they said that the uh, like a serving hatch. He, he. They said he was drunk and he lifted it up and he hit, hit He shot himself and then shot someone else. And it sounded really shit. And I almost wasn't going to do this, but this was one of those episodes where I thought, let's go and read the file and see what you can get. And. Even though the, the 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 hatch system on there is a little confusing, it's taken me a long time to try and make it sound right to you, so you can kind of visualise what it's like. I, I've got some uh, crime scene photos, which uh, I'll I'll put them on the Patreon account. I might try and put one or two on social media, so you can have a look at it because I think they're kind of interesting to have a look at. But they but they're an, they're a, a weird contraption, so it, it doesn't fully make sense. And they had modified it themselves, so you know. Even the police struggled with this kind of thing about how the hell did he shoot himself? Uh, anyway, uh, but it, it makes for an interesting story. And actually, when when I found out that he wasn't just a drunk man, as the press said, as I've said before, the press always pick an angle on this which is best suits their purpose. Instead, when you look at it, it is it, uh, kind of it's 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 love but it's also trauma and you know there's a lot going on with his mother so i think that made it quite of interesting he's kind of very different to uh, other robbers um uh, you'll also notice i deliberately put this episode immediately after the last week's episode the one about the uh uh what was his name john esmond murphy the guy with the uh, epileptic seizure that caused the robbery normally i wouldn't do that normally i wouldn't put two episodes that are so similar together But there was a lot of correlation between kind of the John Esmond Murphy one where he was committing a robbery, but he was in a kind of a a, a kind of a a state of trance because of his um, his epilepsy. Whereas this one. I could kind of push it that way but then to, to make you think oh well it's going to be the same story because it's very similar in a, in a multitude of ways but when, when you actually get into it it's kind of like actually no he's very conscious of what he's doing it's just you know like a lot a lot of people forced to make a really really rash and dangerous decision which he'll regret um there's also uh, similarities here to, if you remember, the Richard Rhodes Henley episode, the the, the uh, randy Canadian sailor who came over to Soho. If you haven't listened to it, I think it's episode 16-ish. Uh, uh, came over, uh, bought, uh, stole literally £7,000 worth of pornography, shot Alan, Big Al, who was the owner, to death. Um, should have been executed. But again, because he was a Canadian uh, uh, military but soldier, I couldn't remember the words, then he was pardoned from his death sentence and sent back to Canada to serve his full sentence. So uh, there seems to be a lot of that going on, especially wartime. The, there's a lot of like, if a soldier is going to be executed in Britain, then that government seems to go, no, 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 we're not going to have that. You need to send them back and we'll, we'll pardon them. <sighs> anyway, uh, I'm sure they did it the other way around as well. Uh, so Um, just before the night, as mentioned, just before the night of the, uh, uh, murder robbery, there was a heavy bombardment in the West End. Didn't mention this in the story, but Morris, uh, Shulman, his wife and, uh, their family, they weren't staying in the uh, coach and horses pub they lived above they didn't stay there they were actually staying in the basement of pages on the corner of wellington street in york street as that is the nearest air raid shelter uh, i'm wondering if it's still there today and hence they they were not too far away when they were able to open up that morning uh coach and horses pub looks almost exactly as it did back then it has changed very little um I haven't got any photos of inside, unfortunately. I've only got photos from the crime scene photos, which kind of help. But it has kind of... They've taken down the kind of brass and glass grills at the moment. Uh, They're they're not there. They went years ago. So, uh, you know, I can't really show. And also, they've taken away the partition between both bars. So, there's a little bit of changes on how it looked. Um... We don't really mention much about Morris Shulman, the victim here, because I wanted to do this as kind of uh, James Forbes McCallum's story. Uh, but Morris Shulman, brother of David, who was the manager of the coach and horses, um, he was 41 years old, known as Murray. Uh, he's at, he was out of work at the time. He'd worked there uh, full for about nine months, but on and off for about four years. Uh, his wife uh, was also the barmaid and worked in the kitchen. Uh, It was owned by their aunt and uncle. Uh, They didn't live there, the aunt and uncle. They lived at the Strand Palace Hotel. Ooh, very nice. Uh, Everyone seemed to like Morris, said he was sweet man, kind, quiet, kept to himself, had no enemies, liked to stay at home. He was just there because he needed the work, really. Um, And as mentioned, you know, uh, this pub was really picked at random by uh james mccallum we know if if um if you look at the map you've got covent garden covent garden market is not big at all you can walk across it in minute and a half two minutes uh wellington street is on the eastern side so it's the first road on the eastern stride and then as a spur road just on the western side southwestern side which if if you listen to the um the meander mile for covent garden you'll hear both on here and Henrietta Street is a spur road on just on the western side. So it's from pub to the Canadian Provost Corps where James worked was maximum minute and a half, two minute walk. If that, you could almost, if there wasn't a building in the way, you could almost see it. Uh, so he would have known that pub. There's a lot of pubs in the area, but he would have known that pub. It's quite a popular pub. um He didn't mention how many times whether he'd been there that often, but it's very likely that he did. Um, as mentioned on the morning uh yep 20 pounds in the float uh all in coins it was actually 14 pounds in large silver two pounds in small silver four pounds in copper um police said there were no notes in there even though even though john anderson who was the the one-armed lift lift operator um Had had a pint of ale there that morning. Uh, He'd either paid paid in coins or he was uh, told, that's fine, you don't need to pay on this one. Um, Interestingly, uh, as mentioned, uh, the pubs were open at at 5 o'clock back in those days. Pubs were licensed to open at 5 o'clock. But uh, if you look at the photo, there's a big sign above that says, Men in uniform of Her Majesty's forces will not be served during 5am to 9am service. Uh, although interestingly, if you were uh, working, you could you go in and have a, like a morning pint. What's all that about? Like for me, a pint is an evening thing. This is seems to. I know some people do. You see people walking to work and having a couple of pints on the way into work. I think, I think that's wrong because you, you know, if I have a pint, in my brain, I I know that my brain's not a hundred percent, so I won't be as focused. So, but it's like it's like people who who you know, I used to have mates who used to get stoned before they go to work and it's like mm, you're not gonna be as focused You're not gonna be as sharp as you think you are but but right then and you know each to their own right um what else we got uh just walking before the robbery so um he'd obviously had left the trafalgar host hotel he'd left irene there uh he was walking down the strand so he can walk down the strand it's uh i would say it's probably a three or four minute walk from the trafalgar hotel uh on the edge of the strand to um uh, the uh, uh, wellington street the coach and horses pub he was still in his full uniform um he was also wearing his his what they call the forage cap it's like it's like a peak cap with a red top uh, uh a red kind of band on top obviously because he's military he has to wear that um but just before he went in he wore he popped on his service balaclava service Claver was full and woolen they were issued them as we were coming over on the boat uh because it was really cold obviously going from canada canada's cold anyway but britain's quite quite cold too uh it was full woolen it had eye holes and one for the mouth uh, so you could pretty much see nothing when he kind of came in um as mentioned he hadn't slept he was tired he was exhausted there'd been uh bombing the night before so he was all over the shop um we don't really have much in the terms of witness statements. Obviously, we have Morrie, Murray, but Morrie's dead. Um, uh, James doesn't remember much because he was in a bit of a, a, you know, bit of a state after, as you would be having, you know, being a nice person and then going off, committing a robbery, and being a nice person and committing a murder, and even worse if you think about it, he's a policeman as well. He's a policeman still, probably technically on duty. Well, he wasn't? Well, he was on sick leave, but you know. He's still in his uniform. He's a policeman, and then he goes off and commits a robbery and a murder. So the state within his mind must have been absolute nightmare. Uh, Dorothy, the wife of Morris, uh, she was upstairs at the time. She was literally coming down the stairs with two cups of tea, one for her, one for Morris, actually one one for David, one for Morris. When she heard the two shots, she was frightened. She stood in the stairwell for about two minutes, trembling, and then she was like, then she came in. Uh, to find out what was going on uh, she actually found uh, one of the bullet casings sat on the bar so I'll explain that shortly they I didn't mention her but there was a uh, they had a maid called Julie O'Keefe she was on the second floor uh, she only heard the shots she didn't see what happened David Sholman, who was um, uh, the brother uh, was in the cellar at the time that's where the safe was but uh, obviously no one went down to get money from the safe he was just sorting out the beer for the day making sure everything's good so the only person uh who we have as a witness is john anderson so the the one-armed lift operator uh john Anderson said that uh, you know uh, about uh, 5 15 a man came into saloon bar he's wearing a big army khaki it says khaki it was actually really gray color don't forget it's quite dark it's great coat uh, he says a large wooden woollen scarf wrapped around his face so he could only see the eyes but it wasn't it was actually uh, the balaclava this is the problem with witness statements is uh, the police will always say this it's never people always say i'm 100 percent about this but like visual memory is only about 30 percent accurate and you know, as things go over time even like you could get 10 people in a room you could have one person walk into the room and go hi oh, i'm looking for bob and then someone goes, oh, Bob's away," uh, you know, down the street. And the person leaves. And they've been in the room for 10 seconds. And if, if like, just half an hour later, you would say to those people who aren't under any stress, what did that person look like? What was their height? What was their hair colour? What were they wearing? Ten people looking at the same person will all have a different description. Not massively different, like, oh, I thought it was a woman. But, you know, you get a height between 5 foot 6 and 6 foot. You'll get, you know, between 10 stone and 15 stone, you know what they were wearing could be different. People's visual memories are pretty bad. So uh, that's why it can never be re- fully relied on. Um, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, James came in. He said, hands up, paper money. Um, uh, John Anderson the, uh, said, uh, the, the shots came almost on top of each other. They were pretty fast. So uh, I'll explain that very shortly. It took the police quite a while to work out really what had happened because although james has said there had been a struggle if you look at the pictures there's no way for the two men to struggle The 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 um the the brass and glass grills in the way just make it not possible you've literally got maybe between waist height and maybe nipple height maybe just below nipple height you've got kind of a, a place there where you can put a pint through the counter but above that above your head it's all a grill so you, literally you can just about see the bar and you got to probably i remember them from years ago you've got to pop your head down and kind of work your way around to see the person so there's no way they could have fought um uh, james said he couldn't remember if he was reaching for the cash register but i've actually got maps of the layout of the the pub which um, i'll put on my patreon account um the cash register is on the opposite side of the bar so you know nothing seems to make sense Uh what does make sense is that Morris didn't do anything. Morris rightly just put his hands up, and uh, you know, as he rightfully done. But the, but the shots did pretty much come on top of each other. Uh, it's it's odd. I've tried many times to try and replicate it. the the uh, The hatches are kind of spring loaded. They 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 open up outwards. So if if I'm James and uh at let's say uh collarbone height yeah or yeah n- let's say nipple height because i like to say nipple at nipple nipple collarbone height you've got kind of a a uh a little kind of draw like window in front of you and that opens towards the bar what would happen is the barman would open up their window would put Dinner plates on there, so they could be served out, or we, we could go, "Oh, mate, your, your your fish and chips are ready," and then go, "Oh, cheers, Gavler." Uh, can cut up, and then you can get the plate, and then the second you take the plate away, the spring closes the window, so the windows are always closed. Um But what it seem, what it seems to be, is that James, with his left hand, opened it, with his left hand, poked his gun through, and then closed it. But it seems to. I don't know. It it doesn't it seems weird that it would have a, a such a fast spring to be able to knock the gun away. It's weird when you when you look at it the glass is smashed through it obviously smashed really quickly. Um it's I don't know. The the police are still that they, they were still trying to work out whether maybe maybe uh he misfired hit the glass the, the bullet fragmented having hit the glass and then went into his arm, but given the fact that uh james's arm the the bullet hole through it was pretty clean, it was kind of in and out it went through the ulnar bone do you know they they say it's more likely that um it def- the the door the sorry, the window deflected the muzzle of the gun and then the he, his gun was facing his arm as he was trying to open the open the uh keep the window open or we'll close it and then he shot himself it's a weird one it's hard to work out but either way what we do know is he did shoot himself and immediately on top of that maybe believing they they say it, it, it was more than likely a re- reaction shot he believed that he'd been shot at so therefore he shot he shot at morris uh, and the shots came right on top of each other um So I've got a couple of crime scene photos on there and uh, the police have put little uh, arrows on there so you can see where all these shots came. So the first shot obviously hit the glass uh, and then went into his own arm. Um, The bullet for that was found on top of the counter by Dolly. The second shot, this was the reaction shot. Um, As mentioned, Jones pulled out his gun. He fired it at Morris. It went through the left-hand side of his throat uh, into so he was probably slightly turned to the angle. Then went through uh, his spine. I think I've got the um, I've got the exact detail here. Oh, I forgot about this. This was this was <laughs> this was the. Uh, if you follow me on social media, this was when I was in the archives ages ago. And right at the start of the case, John Anderson. I read his report, and he said I turned round, and there was a, a man, and he had glitter on his left arm, and I thought, what? A bloody stupid thing to say glitter bloody idiot uh and i just so i so i stayed in my head and i dismissed it and it was only when i got to the end of uh all of the research and i was looking at this and then i worked out what it was the glitter it wasn't glitter he was saying that something was shimmering it was actually um the glass on the panel had smashed and had gone onto the um uh uh onto his great coat so that's all I that. see. For me, I think that's more likely. If there was a shattering of glass at a speed, I would think it's more likely to be a deflection off the glass into his hand. Hence, all the glass. Because it, it says on here that he, he had powder burns on his arm. So it was obviously at close range. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was sitting in the National Archives. And then all of a sudden I got it. And I, I, I went, glitter! At the top of my voice. And then everyone looked at me and I had to apologise uh but it was then that i understood what it, what has happened um but even to this day i still don't think we'll fully understand exactly what happened it is it is pretty complicated uh what else we got oh yeah so the 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 the, the second bullet went through his spine 70 spinal column um the bullet's fragmented uh i've got pictures of it one went into a tea urn one crap that cracked the top of a glass panel another hit a picture frame that was in there Uh, what else was there that was it Uh, John Anderson who was there didn't mention this in the story but John Anderson uh, immediately ran out went into the street uh, and on the corner of Russell Street and Catherine Street uh, was PC Samuel Marchinsky of the War Reserve Uh, he said he didn't see the soldier or hear the shots but he issued a description immediately uh when he when he heard john anderson shouting help policeman shot interesting he didn't say police murder as everyone seems to be saying at the moment in these stories uh he went in and he said uh um uh, morris was uh he was uh, by the time he got in there he was dead already um right what else have we got um David Shawman, obviously his brother, came up from downstairs. He heard the two shots, came up, he saw his brother with an injury to the throat, rushed to his brother's side. Um, uh, but yeah, by that by, the, by that point, he saw that his brother was uh, already dead. Um, Interesting, when you look at the the doctor's report, the doctor says, doctor turned up about an hour later and said, oh, the man had been dead for about 30 to 40 minutes. But everyone else said he was dead literally by the time they got there. Uh, Ooh, horrible smell of shit has come over again. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, Dr. Alexander Baldy, the police divisional surgeon, arrived at 6.15, so that's an hour later. Well done, doctor. Uh, Said... Uh, Morris was lying on the floor in situ, his left arm flexed, his right arm extended, a wound to her neck below the left jaw, very small amount of blood, Um, um, because obviously uh, it went through his spine, uh, which meant... Uh there was no brain function going from the brain down to any parts of the body, which meant he couldn't breathe, which meant his heart wouldn't be working, which meant he had no blood circulation. So same as Christine Grenville in that story when she was stabbed in the heart. Obviously, you know, killed instantly, you don't get any bleeding because the blood the blood's not pumping, therefore, you know, you get a little bit of seepage, but that's it. Little bit of seepage. Um Autopsy conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury uh bullet entered what else did he say uh passing through his full so uh survival survival vertebrae um uh shattering the spinal cord cause of death was injury to spinal cord no shit uh what else did we get oh yeah okay so we didn't do this because uh okay um the, obviously, the Canadian Police H Headquarters was at 30 Henrietta Street, 1 Street away. About half an hour after the incident, Sergeant Stewart of the Canadian Military Police uh, got a call from James uh, asking to speak to John, uh, who's obviously Mac, his best buddy, asking to see him. Uh, he said uh, it's imperative I uh, speak to him. Uh, he said that uh, James was really crying and really upset. So even though uh, Mac was on duty, Mac managed to uh, get a call through to him. Um, they agreed to meet uh, at the junction of Southampton Row and Bloomsbury Square, which was just by Two Bedford Place, which was their billet. Um, uh, Max said, anything wrong? Uh, Has someone been knocking you about? Because James looked in a really bad state. He said, no, it's worse than that. I've shot myself. Uh, Max said, left arm uh, and noticed that uh his left arm was inside his jacket uh at that point he was wearing his forage cap obviously not the balaclava, because that would look weird they went back to their room at two bedford place uh removed his coat mac got out some hot water some iodine the field kit dressed his wound looked at it you know it wasn't bleeding much it was fine uh it was in there that james left the revolver and the uh bullets that the shells that he'd used and from there, he went back to um, uh, the hotel where he would eventually be arrested. Uh, so let me just do this bit. OK, um, in, uh, Detective Inspector Capstick, he was assigned to the scene, got there. Uh, and he he was obviously John Anderson had said uh, the guy who came in here was wearing a Canadian military uniform. We got a red emblem on the uh, on his uh arm uh, and he'd been shot in the left arm so uh di capstick immediately just walked around to 30 henrietta street and said uh oh, we're looking for a guy canadian military military police uniform shot in the left arm they put out a report um interestingly uh mac was, because he was on duty that night, he was escorting uh, an officer who was absent without leave back to Waterloo Station when a description of the murder and the suspect was mentioned. uh, Mac put those pieces together. He was like, oh, shit, you know, young man, Canadian police uniform, was shot probably around five o'clock in in and around Covent Garden in the left arm. He put them all together and basically just went to the police, said, I think it was my mate. Um... And it was, uh, so 9.30am that morning, police arrived, knocked uh, on the room, Um, James and Irene were in bed, what else was there, Uh, Detective Inspector Capstick said, I am a police inspector, I suspect you of murdering a barman at the Cochin Horse's public house shortly after 5am, he was cautioned, Um, James said, I will tell you all about it uh uh what else is there what else is there that i can tell you yeah uh he hadn't really got much on him to be honest he'd got uh, obviously he's got his uniform he got his gun his arm was bandaged um uh he hadn't got oh he hadn't got his gun ammunition with him because he left it back at the his uh bedsit not bedsit billets Um, he got a bloodstained napkin on him where he tried to mop up some of his own blood he got one shilling in silver and four and a half pence in bronze that's all the money he had left Um, he was taken to Bow Street Police Station uh, which is also a police court as well and he said I don't know how it happened Uh, I did not willfully murder him Uh, but on the 27th of December uh, he was charged with murder murder What else do we have on this list of things that I can tell you? Uh, Nope, nope, no, 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 no. I've put a lot of, I've repeated a lot of things to myself to make sure that I don't miss them. Uh, As mentioned, he was held in Brixton Prison. Many people are held in Brixton Prison because it's kind of like a, a holding point ready before they go to court. He was assessed by the doctor uh who said he was medically fit no history of mental illness fits epilepsy uh he obviously had pneumonia uh they looked into all his past to do with uh illnesses in the past they didn't really put all that together uh what else he's got he was examined by uh colonel hill who was the uh canadian army neurologist at the time and said that you know he was fine suffering a little bit of trauma but nothing nothing major uh and that's it that's it i think yeah i think that's it i think that's everything i don't i obviously i don't want to I don't want to ruin the questions which i've probably i probably ruined a lot already anyway haven't i so let's go back let's go back to the questions right get yourself ready get your tea ready get your get your cake ready we're going to do the questions where, where are they here they are okay oh ah, fresh cup of tea right question one what were the five alibis of james mccallum they were money drink illness trauma and love there you go question two which room did James stay in at the Trafalgar Hotel I think I very I think I managed to not give it away on the things I've just said uh that was room six it looks like it's an, quite a nice posh hotel when you go there i've got a picture of it and you go oh that looks really nice but obviously uh war time joe you know, ran this a lot a lot of these places around here were were a bit crappy and a lot of them were kind of uh joe you know, uh, what's the word not enlisted um uh, kind of the government that said okay look we need these kind of places for kind of troops so you know a lot of them were, were quite in quite a shabby state uh question three what did James's dad do as a job? He was a steel riveter in the Clyde dockyard, apparently. Question 4: What crime did James pre What crime was James previously convicted of? The answer was none. He wasn't. He had no prior convictions. Question 5: What was the name of Morris's wife and brother? Obviously, they're different people. It's not the same person, unless he's from Norfolk. Uh, His wife's name was Dolly, uh, real name Dorothy, and his brother's name was David. Question six. What type of gun did James carry? same gun as last week's episode it was a 0.455 caliber smith and wesson army issue revolver every time i write that down i always write deliberately write smith and wesson and i always say to myself make sure you don't say smith and western as everyone says which is a mistake everyone makes the same mistake it's smith and wesson w-e-s-s-o-n and every week I listen back every week I listen to it and I, I go I've said western again Oh, let's hope we get it right this week uh, question 7 uh, what was James's military rank when he was arrested when he was arrested he'd been demoted uh, back down to Lance Corporal but he had previously been promoted to acting corporal so he was actually Lance Corporal question 8 what job did Irene do she was a waitress question nine where did they get engaged it was the shadow in the shadow of the trafalgar square the trafalgar square of in the shadow of trafalgar square so i'm looking at cake question 10 which building was blown up in soho as witnessed by james it was 24 greek street which is currently a moroccan restaurant called tuareg uh, there is another murder there, about a hundred years ago. I think it's I think it's a twenty-four Greek Street as well. Only I've, it was one of those cases that I'd never brought to Murder Mile, and because uh, I, when I went through it, it was just it was one of those ones where it's just some men in a pub and they have some drinks and they have an argument over a girl and a bit of money and they have a fight and one of them hits their head on the pavement and it's just like it's just. Oh, the amount of times I've gone through cases and gone. I hope this is interesting. At the end, my my note to myself is just, don't don't bother with it. It's just bellends. It's just utter bellends who don't know how to don't know how to get through life without going. Oh, I need to hit someone. I'm a fucking idiot. I am. Look at me. I'm a moron. Oh, any episodes with bellends, I just instantly go right sod this. Can't be asked. So that was the episode Ooh, oh god that was a long extra mile shit right uh, i'm gonna wrap this up uh hope hope you're all good hope you're all well stay safe be good uh eat lots of cake drink tea stay healthy uh all good speak to you all again soon bye